Welcome to the Emulsion Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Kana. This is a solo episode. Yep, it's just you and me. On these episodes, I chat through the facts, the news stories, the articles, and the events from the chef slash restaurant world, and then I will season them, or I more literally add my personal opinion that I've garnered for from the almost 10 years in fine dining restaurants all over the world to hopefully share a new perspective, dive deeper into a topic that I think a news outlet didn't do a good enough job of, and give you my takeaways to hopefully progress your life and your career. This show is sponsored by you folks. Patreon is where that happens. If you get value from watching my stuff, if you want to say thank you, I really appreciate it. Patreon.com slash Justin Kana. That is the best place to do that. So thanks in advance if you can. I appreciate you if you want to, but you can't. Free ways that you can actually support this show include leaving a like or a comment on this video, giving a review on iTunes, or going ahead and sharing this episode with a friend. So specifically, what's up, folks, to Jonathan Rosas, Alfredo Pena, and Dimitri Kim, the newest supporters on Patreon, uh, this week. I would say this week, but it's two weeks. Uh, Two weeks I get a chance to thank the folks on Patreon. So thanks to the three of you for your support. It really, really, truly does mean the world. Uh, And those are the new folks on Patreon this week. So thank you. Today's beverage. I had my uh, coffee already this morning, and I have uh, another coffee meeting at 12 today. So I'm going with the uh, green tea, jasmine tea. Anna's a big fan of jasmine tea. So I just grabbed a little bit of that to drink during the show. I feel like it's just going to get oversteeped, and it's kind of too hot right now, so we'll see if I end up actually drinking it. Uh, let's do a little scene change here. There we go. Then you guys can see the articles. Hopefully that will show up. Have you folks been following along with Qua lately? We uh, we covered the story a few weeks ago, uh, back when Matt Kirkley left and Eric Anderson came in, and some really interesting articles have come out recently Uh, both on varying spectrums of his work so far. So the first piece that I want to cover comes from Forbes. It's titled, Quaz Chef Eric Anderson on Why Fine Dining Will Never Die. And to hit the nail right on the head right away, his answer to that question is, quote, beautiful, great-tasting food will never go out of style. There's always going to be those people who want to have a luxurious experience, people who eat out for a hobby, as a passion. It may ebb and flow as times change and the economy changes, but at the end of the day, people will still love to go out and be pampered, end quote. So he continues to talk all about San Francisco as an amazing food city. He was, of course, uh, coming from Nashville, I think, where Catbird Seat was, and he's he's new to San Francisco. He says in the article that he, he doesn't really have a lot of friends right now. He's probably working a ton. But the he also talks about the high concentration of three Michelin star and just Michelin star restaurants in general. Uh, she asks him about the closings of restaurants in Chicago and his thoughts on that and so much more. There's a couple of interesting points I wanted to highlight, though, uh, if you aren't going to end up reading this article yourself. Uh, He says, quote, I don't have any stars. Matt Kirkley has three stars. I think technically stars are given to the chefs, so I don't have any stars. If we lose a star next year, it's like me opening with two stars, but I don't think anyone's going to see it like that, end quote. Uh, And I have an interesting perspective on this. I, I agree in a certain sense, and this it's weird because these rules only technically apply when things like this happen, when you have a restaurant that has a three-star ranking, and then literally months after that happens, you, you, you shift chefs. So it's a really, really interesting um, situation, and props to him for, for more or less addressing it in that way. Uh, and the fact that the perception is not necessarily going to be what he wants. But again, props to Amber Gibson, who is the uh, 
contributor who who wrote this piece for such a layup of an interview. I don't think this piece was deep enough uh, f- to necessarily get anything out of him. It was more or less, uh, you're doing a great job. Welcome to San Francisco. I certainly learned a little bit more about Eric through this article. I didn't really stop to think about the evolution of Qua and the chefs that have gone through from like a macro perspective, right? Like we we see that the the name has changed on the door or, or on the bottom of the menu or whatever, and the food is, is changing a little bit. But Eric, who gives a unique perspective because he's actually been in it. And he says, obviously, he says, quote, obviously, Matt was a fish cook. His menu was modern seafood. While I like to focus more on things that fly, my focus has been on birds, pigeon, duck, and quail with a little bit of meat. And Chef Daniel Patterson's food was vegetable focused. Mine is a very protein heavy menu right now, end quote. And all within kind of staying on brand, that's an achievement in of itself. But maybe it's not, though, right? Like, if a space can go... If a space and a name can go through three chefs with these apparently very differing styles, are any of the chefs that unique? That's my question. Like, we'll see where it goes. But at this point, if you go to Qua, you're still at a three-star restaurant. So I think that's an interesting thing. Uh, Flipping it all... And we'll see how I can change the scene for you. There we go. Uh, Flipping it all, Michael Bauer the critic for the San Francisco Chronicle doesn't seem to agree with the fact that he's doing a good job. Uh, Michael Bauer just wrote a piece called Why the Restaurant Qua Won't Be on This Year's Top 100 Restaurants List. Yeesh, let's, uh, let's dive into that. So he starts talking about the transition that we just covered from Patterson to Kirkley to Anderson, saying that, quote, I'm hoping in time his ideas will gel, but for now there seems to be uncertainty in how to meld his style with Patterson's and incorporate the lighter nuances of California. In fewer than 10 days, when the annual Top 100 restaurants are announced, Qua will not be on the list. Anderson is technically gifted, and there are lots of complex techniques and pretty food on display, but presentation often supersedes the actual taste. The menu feels discombobulated without the distinct personality that distinguishes a four-star restaurant. End quote. Spoiler alert, he gives it a three-star review, but he voices more complaints and compliments, a few compliments, saying that the menu he had was a season behind. He says the new front-of-house team is an improvement than the one under Kirkley's, so a lot of people didn't really talk about that, that the, I'm pretty sure the SOM and the general manager, the restaurant manager, both swapped as well when Kirkley left. Uh, Bauer praises Ridley Redfern for her pastries. She's been around for through both chefs. Um, he says he's not a fan of the bread service, which is apparently a slice of country bread from a local bakery, which he says it's weird that they would skimp on that, that a three Michelin star restaurant would skimp on, he's, he calls it skimping, on not making their own bread. Uh, he does a pretty savage comparison saying, quote, Kirkley's a master of Patterson's, uh, Qua Kitchen in such a short time was an anomaly. Most four-star restaurants didn't start at the top, and I hope in time Anderson will find his unique voice and step into four-star status, end quote. And then, again, like I mentioned earlier, he does give Qua three stars. So we've heard from the chef. We've heard from a local critic. My takeaway from this very complicated perspective is there's too many hands in the pot right now for anyone to kind of point fingers with the results, good or bad, right? Like, if they maintain three stars... How much of that is due to Matt Kirkley for even getting the guide to consider Qua as a three-star, right? Like, is it too easy of a layup? Uh, and then should the credit go to Matt Kirkley? Or should the credit ultimately go to Daniel Patterson because he still has his hands in the in the, in the proverbial pot? How much is it Anderson? Because it, he couldn't... He could have continued to cook Kirkley's food, but he didn't, and he rebuilt the menu and made it his own. Is that mean that credit goes to him? 
And with Daniel Patterson, like I said, weighing in, is he sabotaging the success? Is he enabling the success to to happen? It's certainly a really unique situation with heavy-hitting restaurants and very talented chefs operating at this insane level. I certainly haven't had to deal with a situation like it in my career, so I'm 100% paying attention to it, and it's one of the reasons that I wanted to cover it on the show today. But I think there's enough uh, – there's – if there was even just one little tinge of drama in this whole situation, it would be enough for a documentary on Netflix. But it's one of those stories that's really fun to follow while it's happening. So I'm really excited that I could bring that to you folks and uh, talk through it a little bit more. Next up is a story for all you expos out there. Shout out to my dude Thomas, went from Salad Station last year to running a service of 300 guests the other night. Uh, Sent me a message about that, so uh, props to Thomas. But I know I just said expo. Uh, and we all say expo, but it's actually spelled E-X-P-E-D-I-T-E-R-S. There's no O in expoditers, or at least how we think that we say it. So should we call it XP station, not expo? We're all saying it wrong. Uh, but anyways, we've we've all seen it floating around, uh, hopefully on social media this week. I certainly have on Twitter and Facebook. But New York Times did a piece called The Quarterback of the Kitchen. It's not always the chef end quote. And of course, when they say quarterback, they mean the one that's calling the plays, structuring a game plan for the execution. And he, the, that person that gets all the communication from, uh, in football, it would be the coach, but coaches, but in this case, it's from front of house. So have you ever expedited before? That's my question of the day for you. Leave me a comment if you, or tweet at me if you've expedited before. That's my question for you folks. But, uh, I was having this conversation in my head the other day Every chef should train on XP station before they get the spot on the line. The progression, I think, should go prep and then expediting and then salad station, I think, or like that first cold courses, however the kitchen is set up. I certainly know the feeling when you go from prep to garmage and you're just so lost and confused by the ticket system, right? Like it's getting fired, you're out on it, you're picking up, it's on deck, and you're like, what the heck is going on? So... I think if you learn the ins and outs of expediting, you get an empathy for the entire kitchen and the front of house, and then you learn the timing, and then when the time comes to have the cooking part be part of your day, then you have this huge advantage because you know how the whole machine works. But anyways, that's my little rant on expediting. Let's get into the story. So it does a little breakdown of what an expediter is, saying, quote, chefs say expediters should be precise, strategic, and terrifically organized with an uncanny up-to-the-minute knowledge of all of the restaurant's moving parts and an ability to communicate with ease, clarity, and speed. Most importantly, they should possess a uh, sense of total unflappability and persistent sang Freud in the case in the face of chaos, end quote. So Rebecca Rabin, I hope I'm saying it right, Rabin Robin, is a 26-year-old who is the expediter at Blue Hill at Stone Barns. She says her sous chef told her, quote, things are going to get crazy, but no matter what, stay calm, because if you lose it, then it translates everywhere, to the cooks, to the front of house, everywhere, end quote. The article continues to say, quote, the expediter possesses all the information coming from the chef and the manager and fires sequences of dishes accordingly, keeping in mind exactly how long each dish will take to finish and how much each cook is already juggling. Some kitchens have multiple ticket machines, so cooks can see the orders as they come in, but they gave an example of in Momofuku Noodle Bar, who don't have tickets to reference, listen to the expediter's spoken cues. They cook blindly on trust, end quote. 
So if you want a uh, few tips and tricks or want to see how other expediters do their job, uh, control that pacing, make sure the ship stays afloat, I really, really enjoyed reading this article. It was from a really interesting perspective. It's one of those industry articles, I think, not so much catered towards uh, the home cook reading this, but it's for us restaurant people or us uh, people with experience in the industry. So if you want to read that, it's linked up in the show notes, as always, on justincana.com slash podcast. So taking it back into restaurant reviews, and I'll pull up the next graphic here, uh, Ryan Sutton did a piece on Momofuku Ko's bar last week, and he had a lot of great things to say, even though he only gave it three out of four stars. So uh, coming into this article, I actually thought that he was reviewing Momofuku Ko, uh, and that he was just doing another review on it, which I, I mean... Could, could have been cool, but it's of their bar program, which I wasn't even aware was open. So I was really, really excited to read this article. He starts by doing a breakdown of their chicken wing, saying, quote, Normally the price of a meal at Co. is $255, reservation only. The quadruple fried wing, though, however, is only available in Co.'s new a la carte bar room, where it sells for just $7, walk-ins only. And from the look of the picture that they posted, it looks like you get two chicken wings with one order, although maybe it is a $7 chicken wing. Who knows? Anyways, he goes into this weird rant about Co. itself, uh, tasting menus in the U.S., and how, quote, once approachable tasting joints, Asuka, Brooklyn Fair, Atera, have skyrocketed into the upper stratospheres of prices, major food group pivoted from $50 set menus at Teresi Italian Specialties, rest in peace to power spots so expensive they don't even publish the prices online. And what's replacing those more reasonable-ish venues? Nothing, really. Dinner at one of these city's dozen or so omakase joints will easily run $350 plus per person, end quote. So there's 15 seats in Momofuku Co.'s bar, and it's meant to be a taste of their offerings in a sense, very similar to if you're familiar with Per Se, they do like a salon menu, uh, Met the restaurant at Meadowood also does like a bar program. Uh, when I was living in Napa, it was like $45 for like five or six canapes. And then you buy drinks on top of that. Uh, their program here at Momofuku Co. Bar is more accessible. It's a semi lower price point, And I say semi because two dishes will apparently cost you $30. There's also a $45 duck pie and a $100 caviar service for 50 grams of caviar. Uh, Sutton says that's a good deal. He also says, quote, the bar might not be the four star side of Co. Service can be a touch uneven here. But the fact that the walk in half of the restaurant is the most exciting half suggests that Chang and Gray remain committed to Momofuku's iconoclastic accessible roots rock on end quote so i mean overall it's a good piece don't get me wrong i appreciated his deep dive and the fact that he highlights them as a as a place but for me as someone who's been talking about sutton's reviews for a good part of two years now on, on the show here he is a definitely hard nut to crack right like he wants affordable menus but he also wants stellar and personal service and he wants caviar and foie and wagyu, but he points his nose up when he has to pay a premium for it, right? Like, it's he, he gets such joy out of knocking a restaurant for charging a price that seems ridiculous, uh, I, in my opinion, without giving enough credit to the product that's actually being provided to him. Uh, he wants approachable food, but he also wants to give praise to people that push the boundaries and promote creativity, but then he's really quick to knock a restaurant for charging a high price because 
people rally behind that. I've had it on my this place called videos where people are like, why would you pay that much for a meal? And it gets people angry when they see food for $100 plus or $200 or $300 or $400. Like, my question, as someone who has experience in these kitchens that he's critiquing, is who do you think you are, right? Like, how how are these kitchens going to pay for that, pay for their people, pay to source great product, right? Like, it's it's such a weird dichotomy. And it doesn't make sense. Like, if you're going to ask your customers, do you want to pay less for the same experience? Everyone is going to say yes. No one is enjoying paying more for the same thing, right? Like, it's a bad thing to be championing. And not every, I'm not saying everyone should just put caviar on their menu and do a 400% markup on it, right? Like, it seems like Sutton is that friend who has a great experience, but at the end, when you ask him about it, he's like, yeah, it was amazing, but it could have been cheaper, Right, like it just shows a complete lack of understanding of how the economics of a restaurant actually work, and it's really important to talk about. I think because he sits in this really unique position of being a few levels above the foodies and the bloggers and the Instagram influencers with his ability to write for Eater, but then he's not really like at the level of New York Times or Michelin or Food and Wine where the more educated population reads. He's he to me he's writing for the BuzzFeed demographic. It's it's very vanilla, and I get it. That's his market, but I would just urge him to be careful. Right, like all chefs want to charge less for their food. Uh, I mean, you you know what I mean. When I say all chefs, uh, there's a huge majority of chefs who will go bankrupt because they don't want to charge the prices that need to be charged for the business to actually be profitable. And if you're a chef and you're seeing this article and you're listening to this story, I would implore you to charge what you think it's worth and plant your feet behind it firm. Like, if you aren't charging for the salmon... Like my 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 perspective is if you 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 technically aren't charging for the salmon you aren't charging for the cost of that salmon, you're charging for the seven eight nine years of your experience that you put into the dish that you're preparing. You're you're charging for your rent in the beautiful space or the beautiful neighborhood uh, that you've created. You're charging for the rock star front of house staff that you're cultivated. You're charging for the plates from that dope artist that you commissioned, and you're charging for the raise that you just gave your dishwasher. Right? Like, don't let this guy devalue you and what you're doing. But on the flip side, if you're charging an arm and a leg for a mediocre product, I would say it's only a matter of time before Ryan Sutton calls you out for it. Do you feel me? Uh, so I didn't even plan on this. This is a funny transition, perfect segue into our next story. Whitney Falloon over at Eater published a piece called 7 out of 10 Americans want a higher minimum wage, even if it means higher menu prices. So, uh... I would give it a read if you want some poll results. It's not the uh, most stimulating read, but I wanted to cover it because we've gotten to this really interesting place in the industry where people are more expensive than the product, and because people are getting more expensive, the product is going to become more expensive as well. Does that make sense? Because the product people are going to have to pay their people more to create that product, and $10 minimum wage is going to be the new norm soon. And where I'm at in Seattle, personally, it's already at $15 an hour. And like, I'm, for example, I'm looking for servers for this new project that I have going on. And th- it, that's the rate we're hiring at is $15 an hour. And to me, that's insane because just maybe seven or eight years ago, I like $7.75 an hour was my first rate at my first job. So this is literally double that. And given that was in a small town in Wisconsin and this is in Seattle, but my other point from back to my other point from the previous story, if you ask people like, do you think we should pay people more money? Like, and if you, if you're getting asked that question and 
you aren't a part of that business and that decision doesn't affect you financially, of course the answer is going to be yes, right? Like, who's going to say, like, no, I don't think you should pay people more money? And especially here in Seattle, there's countless restaurants in the city that charge, like, $16 for an appetizer. And then they tack on a 20% service charge on top of that. And then it's like you're at almost like an 18% food cost because the rent and the labor is so expensive. That's why you have to charge so much. And on top of that, then the restaurant will only take home like a 6% profit on that dish. It's like it's crazy math, but it's just a reality. And we're, we're, we're going to look at this time as a weird era in the, in, in the, in the restaurant uh, sphere, the restaurant uh, arena. Tipping is questionable, and the service charge causes its own set of problems, and wages themselves are increasing. But to me, we have to go through this rough patch to come out the other side as kind of a better collective, where we're like, we understand, we tried the service charge thing, we tried tipping, we tried taking away tipping and just doing service included. Like, there's no, the, the thing about this whole thing is that there's no one-size-fits-all solution. And it's 100% something I'm paying attention to, because I want you folks to be aware of it as well. I will end from this quote from the article saying, quote, a majority of those surveyed, 62%, say that they have more confidence in small local restaurants than they do in large groups like the National Restaurant Association. And while low-income food service workers are fighting for an extra 3 to $5 per hour, the NRA's CEO earns more than $1,800 per hour, end quote. So I'd like to leave you with that little uh, bit to, to make yourself to make yourself feel great after hearing that that figure. Next up, and in be careful what you when you open your own restaurant news, Jose Garces is in the news because he's in trouble. Crazy legal issues are staring down the chef because of financial fraud charges. The article says, quote, reports in recent days chronicle a flash a rash of litigation that he's facing from suppliers and investors who accuse him of essentially running a hospitality focused ponzi scheme end quote so in very 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 simplified terms and if you want to read more about it you should check out the show notes on this article this is how it goes and again very summarized your chef Jose Garces, right? You need money for your restaurant. You appo- you approach some investors and get, in his case, two and a half million dollars. Then you go to a bank or another investor and get a couple million as a line of credit to pay off those debts to that first investor, and that'll basically quote unquote prove that you're a good businessman. Because it's like, hey, I, I paid off my debts, and then he would circle back and ask for more money. And then essentially, it's it, it's essentially like digging a hole and then getting out of it and then digging another hole three feet later and using the dirt from hole one to fill hole number two. And there was all these other things that would go with it, right? Like he would not pay his food bills. He apparently owes $1 million plus to his suppliers, which to me is like crazy. Like what does $1 million in wholesale product look like? That's just bonkers to me. But then he would not pay the suppliers and may, like did he not pay the suppliers to make his books look like they were profitable. I'm not 100% sure. The article doesn't divulge that, but his investors aren't happy is the punchline. So concerns for him have to be like, if he somehow comes out of this, how in the world is anyone going to invest in him again? There's got to be some real reputation rebuilding for, for, for Chef Jose to, to make this a positive for him. It's not a good track record to approach a new investor with like, yeah, I've I've had some success in the past but there's been there's there was this one time where I had a lawsuit but 
As with most of these stories, I just want you to be aware of these happenings. I know some of you are going to deal with your own investors someday in the future. And after hearing these stories and, and, and knowing what has happened in history, hopefully you feel better equipped to make those decisions in your career when the time comes. So that's why I like covering stories like this. Flipping it to another uh, Chef Jose, Jose Andres uh, just got named as one of Time's most influential people of 2018. Amazing, amazing to see a chef be recognized in that in that light. Andres, of course, being very political lately, bashing Trump any chance he can get, uh, and providing relief to those affected by the hurricanes in Puerto Rico and Texas and beyond. He is 100% being recognized for those humanitarian efforts. There's only 100 people that time recognizes every year, and he's also got a Humanitarian of the Year award from James Beard Foundation and more great press on top of that. So bravo to Chef Andres. It's an uh, absolutely great way to use that influence for good. Whoopsies. Uh, getting my mic all screwed up. The last article, oh, I, I didn't show you guys the thumbnails here, so you can check out this one here, the controversy surrounding Iron Chef Jose Garces. And then here's the headline from uh, the Time magazine shoot. So the last article that I want to talk about today is insane news. Some of you may uh, know the story of Andy Haler, the guy who ate at all the three Michelin star restaurants in the world back in 2004. He's gotten close, I think, on other years, uh, whether or not he ate at them all or if he ate at multiple. But this other guy is trying to do a one-up, or maybe it's not a one-up, it's just a different kind of food tour. So, quote, Paul Grinberg is a Bay Area finance industry exec who heads his company's international operations and travels for roughly two-thirds of the year. This means, A, he has some disposable income, and B, he gets to stay in cities with a superb dining scene, end quote. So, some of you might also know that the world's 50 best is actually a list of 100 restaurants, but they choose to highlight the top 50. So he's shooting for every single one of them on San Pellegrino's list. And with two months until the next list comes out, he successfully dined at 99 of the top 100 restaurants. Now you're probably wondering, who's the last one? Sushi Saito. Sushi Saito. He can't seem to get a table there. Uh, and it's crazy. The pressure's on, right? Like, quote, the most intense plans he's made to compete, complete his mission are flying 12 hours to eat one meal and booking two dinners on the same night. He says, quote, I was only in Adelaide for one day, so I had no option but to have two dinners, end quote. He sounds like we would get along. He sounds like my kind of traveler. He runs an Instagram at restaurants to dine for if you're wanting to follow his journey. I just thought that it was a cool story. It seems like a fun guy to come eat at your restaurant. Like, right? Like, he, he is doing the cliche list following, but he seems like he actually has a good time and he wants to support chefs. He does a little, like, comparing Echibari to uh, Burnt Ends in Singapore. Um, he just seems like a cool guy, not, not necessarily like... Um, I don't know. We all I've, I've I've covered stories like that before where it's like the people that uh, come and get the Instagram photo and then they'll move on to the next one. You know what I mean? Uh, even though on the surface, that's what he seems like he's doing. Uh, he, he, he likes supporting these chefs. So 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 I'm all for it. If anyone knows anyone at Sushi Sushi Saito, let's come together and uh, get this guy a table, shall we? So last up, industry style. This is direct answer. It's usually a DM that you folks have sent me. It happens all the time. Uh, this week at Apex 
at apex.image on Instagram asked a follow-up from a point that I covered the other day. He asked me about culinary school and changing industries himself. He says, quote, I was a terrible student when I went to college. To be honest, it was one semester of just immaturity and not giving a fuck. Uh, end quote. But now he wants to get into culinary school and he's nervous that they won't accept him because his track record on paper doesn't look great. And with well, a point that he was uh, referencing from from my perspective was uh, the fact that I covered the other day that when I was looking for restaurants to stage at, I would go to restaurants that I didn't really care about, that I knew that I could screw up at. And then when it came time to go to the, the, the restaurant that I was actually passionate about getting in, all of that nervousness was, was, was gone in a way. So I 100% gave him that advice. But I also said... That he shouldn't really worry about the. I mean, if you're getting into culinary school, it's a totally different beast. Uh, a lot of the culinary schools, especially, I think he mentioned he wants to go to CIA. They're so financially motivated, right? Like, if if your if your check will cash, they'll let you in. Is that 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 was my opinion, at least on a lot of the students that that got in. Uh, I was r- kind of disappointed with the uh, people that were in my classes, as far as like passion for the industry and relative skill level. Um, but at the same token, I don't think you should be that worried about having a prior good university education. Uh, yes, it might not look great on paper, but the Culinary Institute of America started as a place for the army people to go after they got done serving in the army. Uh, that's their specialty, is taking people from one industry and converting them to another industry. That's what the school was founded on. So I wouldn't be too worried about it. Again, ask yourself, what what do you need culinary school for? Uh, I know that he's mentioned to me that he wants to have the credibility, to have that on, on his resume. But again, if you're able to get into these restaurants and that's where your ambitions are, that's, that's where you need to go. Um, I'm going to help him as much as I can, especially because I have a little bit of experience at CIA. Um, I'm always happy to get DMs from you folks and answer questions if I have some free time available, especially if it gives me uh, something where I can answer it here on the show and give you a more direct answer that will hopefully help more of you. Uh, Again, if you guys do send me a DM and you get featured in direct answer, I will always do it with your discretion. I won't be sharing conversations we have without giving you a heads up first. Uh, if you want to go deeper or talk through your ambitions or progress your career or get that raise at work or you're wanting to build a personal brand or host pop-ups of your own, I just started offering one-on-one coaching. If that's something that you want to explore, check out justinconnacom slash coaching. It definitely allows me to go way deeper than just kind of a back-and-forth message with you folks and really provide some value and help you uh, make your next move. So check that out if you're interested. In our non-industry story of the week, uh, I promise it's not going to be a movie this time. I've been uh, really covering the uh, movies lately. This might freak some of you out, and it might make some of you really happy. I just found a game all about cooking. It is called Overcooked. It's for the Nintendo Switch. If any of you have played it, you guys should give me a heads up. But I just Amazoned a copy to my house. It arrives today. Stay tuned on Twitch because I'm wanting to play it on Twitch. It's essentially a little problem-solving game, but you have to communicate with the other people playing with you. So it's like a real kitchen. 
You have to like bang out orders and time your pickups and cook video game food. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to streaming that on Twitch. I was playing with the idea of gaming a little bit on Twitch, but uh, the idea is that I want to start inviting some chefs over to play the game, uh, whether it's podcast guests uh, or other chefs that I just normally hang out with. If you're in Seattle and you want to come over and play Overcooked with me on the Nintendo Switch, I am 100% going to do that after I spend a few days with it and become a rock star at it so I can just destroy anyone that comes to my place because it's just how competitive I am. But, uh, yeah, that's my non-industry story. Overcooked is my my new obsession. So I'm going to get into that, and hopefully you guys can look forward to watching it on Twitch. So that'll do it for this week's show and episode 62. If you have stories you want covered next week, definitely shoot them to me on Twitter and hashtag the emulsion so I can find them. If you have questions for my upcoming guests, check out that schedule uh, and get suggestions for new guests by visiting justinconnacom slash podcast. If you enjoyed the show and you want to support future episodes, head over to justinconna well, head over to patreon.com slash justinconna and you can support my content for as little as one dollar a month. Thank you so much in advance if you already do so. Uh, Subscribe and follow if you aren't already. Definitely leave a thumbs up on this video or consider leaving a review on iTunes if you listen there. That helps get the show out to more people. So regardless of where you are, I really, really appreciate your ears. So thank you. Thank you so much. My name is Justin Kana. Have a good one.